Dynasty Podcast presents Dynasty Panelcasts, a live panel discussion with industry experts and innovative creatives. Hosted by Haima Black. No RSVP required. All right. Thank you guys for coming out tonight here at Chicago Athletic Association. This is our Entrepreneurial Insights from Chicago's Academic Experts panel event tonight. Um, and I have an incredible lineup here with me. Um, that I'm very excited to have here, Melissa Crowns Kaufman, the executive director of the Garage at Northwestern, immediately to my left. Uh, next to her, we have Bruce Leach, executive director at the Coleman Entrepreneurship, Entrepreneurship Center at DePaul University. Thank you for being here. We have Terry Lonier, dean at the Career and Professional Experience uh, Department or office at SAIC. And we have Martin Adkins, the chair of the Music Business Department at SAE Institute. Um, let's clap for our awesome panelists tonight. So I know I just ran down names, but why don't you guys kind of each talk about what it is you do and how you got your start in the academic industries? Um, hi. So uh, the Garage is the hub for student entrepreneurship and innovation at Northwestern up on the Evanston campus. Um, the Garage is an 11,000 square foot space. Uh, really, we bring together all of the resources of the university to bring to the students. It's only for students at Northwestern, everything from undergraduate freshmen all the way through to Kellogg MBAs and PhD students. And we incubate up to 60 student-founded startups per quarter in our space at the Garage. Okay, um, I'm Bruce Leach, uh, Executive Director at the Coleman Center at DePaul. I uh, do not have an academic background other than I got my MBA at DePaul, but I've uh, been on the advisory board of the center for about 12 years. Actually, Terry Lonier preceded me as Executive Director at DePaul. I had my own business. Uh, we installed IT systems for large retailers, uh, built it up to about a $100 million company with uh, about 400 employees. Traveled Monday through Friday, uh, got burned out on that end of it, and decided maybe I would do some consulting, and then uh, earlier this year joined uh, as executive director. We uh, have a brand new center, um, thanks to my predecessor uh, in the business school. It's about 5,000 square feet, and it's a great place for our students to come and congregate. Um, to work on projects, uh, attend workshops. We have private offices for our mentorship program. And um, we can set it up classroom style for about 80 people for events. So we're thrilled to have it right in the heart of our downtown campus in the business school. I'm Terry Lonier. I'm Dean of Career and Professional Experience at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. We have about 3,400 undergraduate and graduate students in art. As you might expect, we do not have a business school per se, but we have entrepreneurship infused throughout the school. Uh, our students are doing some pretty creative things. And I joined SAIC about 15 months ago with the intention of leading that entrepreneurial effort. And we have 24 different artistic areas, ranging from traditional like painting, printmaking, ceramics, sculpture, to art and technology, to video, to architecture, to designed objects. Our students have no majors and no grades, but they're incredibly entrepreneurial. So we act as the hub, the central uh, point of reference for a lot of the entrepreneurial activities that we are now taking across the entire school. No majors, no grades. 
Yes. Um, I'm Martin Atkins. I'm the music business department chair at SAE Chicago. We're a small school with 180 students, a bunch of recording studios. There are 56 SAEs around the world. I've been to a few of them. It's one of the reasons I'm there. Um, and I'm using the music business um, program as a platform, if you like, to teach creative thinking and entrepreneurship problem solving through that. It's a great way to get through to students and put them in situations that they think they might want to be in. Um, so um, that's what I'm doing. My background is in music, um, starting to play my drums again and dealing with the entrepreneurial problems of uh, flying in 35 members of a band from all over the world. Yeah, which is a whole crazy operation in and of itself. Um, so, you know, today we're really going to be looking at, like, entrepreneurship as it relates to students, as it relates to maybe younger creatives, um, you know, artists, that kind of space. Like, so let's start with, like, what are some of the challenges that student entrepreneurs face, you know, in their journey when they're trying to develop their own craft? So I think one of the problems that I see with my students is that they're often anxious to build something before they really figured out if it's a business or a company. So we have a really strong engineering school. So I see a lot of students that just start building the next drone or piece of software, or whatever it is, but they're not really building necessarily to solve a problem that a customer has. And that's really where the difference between a business and a hobby comes in. If you're, if you're just building it for yourself to satisfy your own need, that's more of a hobby. But it really becomes a business when you're solving a problem for somebody else. So before you write your first line of code, before you build your first prototype, get out of your dorm room or wherever you are and go talk to whoever you think your end customer is and ask them questions um, about, you know, if this did exist in, this, in the world, would, this, would you be willing to pay for this? Does this solve a real problem for you or something you'd be interested in? I think that's one of the best places to start. I totally agree, Melissa, and it seems that a lot of students fall in love with a piece of technology, and they think, oh, this is just a very cool thing. How can I maximize it? How can I turn it into something? And what I really enjoy working with our students is that they may not be the engineers, they may not be the coders, but they're really looking at it from a design thinking point of view, which means they're looking at what are known as those wicked problems those really big problems to solve, and then take it from there and see how the technology and the other elements can address that instead of falling in love with the technology first. I think, um, so my students are artists or artist managers. I think one of, the, one of the problems they face is letting go of the art and the music and jumping into understanding how much some entrepreneurial business skills can help them and how one isn't betraying the other. And, and so trying to navigate that, you know, what seems like an all or nothing situation, but trying to flavor one area with, with the other, that's a challenge. We're only a 16-month program, and I feel like some of some of those challenges are, are, are four-year challenges. Um, I think for us at DePaul, we've got a very uh, interesting demographic of students. Uh, 
about 40% of the DePaul undergrads are first-generation college, and about 80% are from the Chicago area. So they're very, uh, they're, they have a tremendous work ethic, uh, and I would say their biggest uh, issues are trying to ground them in the reality of uh, their idea actually needs to have a business model behind it. Um, I never want to stunt their enthusiasm, but some of the kids I'm having to pull off the ceiling and get them a little bit grounded uh, in the reality of their idea. The other half come in where they've got a great idea, but no self-advocacy skills. So it's a matter of teaming students together from uh, both of those perspectives to help them uh, take their idea to the next level without um, tarnishing their enthusiasm for, for their idea. So. Well, and, and that's a really interesting point, Bruce. Uh, you know, you're talking about students having to be advocates for themselves. How can students get the word out about the work that they're doing? You know, I think that that's something I see a lot. I didn't mention this, but I teach at Columbia College as well, and I don't know what they're breaking back there. Um, but I teach at Columbia College, and something I see a lot is that students, yeah, they might have a great skill set, they might have a great project that they're working on, but they don't know how to get the word out about it. So how can students do that where they're letting people know about what they're doing without it just turning into more white noise on the Internet? I got a, a quick answer to that one. Um, yesterday, uh, we have a student organization in the center. We challenged them exactly with that problem. How do, how do you get the word out? How do you get the idea out? And so our student organization created an idea expo, which we actually had just yesterday in the center, where we had 22 different student teams created a basically a one-page poster, kind of a floor-to-ceiling poster that they printed out with the, their idea. And what that did was, was get them to focus on the idea instead of a 20-page business plan document, just make it as simple as getting it out on a piece of paper. And then people came through the center throughout the day to read about their idea when they weren't in class, the founder was there talking about the idea, and that got them some really good exposure, some good feedback. Um, we had the people come through the center actually invested in the businesses that were displayed to see if they thought uh, they had some merit, and then we had a little awards contest last night. But uh, those 22 teams got a lot of visibility yesterday. We had about 200 people come through the center. Um, so that was one way for us to get... Um, get it out of their head, onto paper, in a simple kind of fun format to begin then the conversation of taking that to the next level, which might be a pitch competition or getting them some publicity in another way. Yeah. I, I think the first thing to keep in mind is, is that cr the creation of anything new, whether it's a startup or art or a movement, it's it's a very hard and very messy process. There's no, you can read in the Wall Street Journal that somebody started something and suddenly it's Instagram and we sold it for a billion dollars, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in the middle there. And just going through that process, whether you are successful or not, well, you will learn so much and develop an entrepreneurial mindset that you can apply to lots of other things in life, that that is really about the journey, not the destination. So keep that in mind. Now, knowing that, and where do you start? How do you get the word out? You have to start from a place of passion. When I watch the kind of the student entrepreneurs that come through the garage, the ones that have, and our program's only a year old, the ones that are most successful are focusing on a personal passion of theirs, something that drives them, something innate. 
that they want to work on. And sometimes that's a drone for somebody. For somebody else, maybe that's a coffee business. For someone else, maybe that's a nonprofit. But it's something that when times get tough, it continues to push them forward. And because they are so passionate about it, it really attracts other people to that idea. So it helps them attract co-founders and teammates and their first customers. And they go to conferences and they talk about their idea with such passion that it attracts more and more people to you. Um, those are the companies that I see that have been the most successful, is that when you can really channel into that, that innate passion that, that helped you start your company. So that's how you get the word out. I think you also get the word out by starting with your own personal network. We talk to our students and, and we share with them about what a network is and they look at us with this blank look in their face and we say, okay, it starts with the people in this class or here this evening. And then you actively make a commitment to expanding that. And somebody knows somebody who knows somebody and it might be a Facebook I like, it might be a connection on Twitter, it might be something on social media, or it actually might be a person-to-person. -person. And then you actively stay in contact with that person, because you never know. You walk into a room, there may be somebody there who shares that same passion, that same interest, who may know someone. But it, it really, for most, the most dedicated entrepreneurs, it is not something that is haphazard. It is a focus, and it is an active pursuit. And these days in Chicago, there is such a dynamic entrepreneurial community. There are meetups, there are events. You could go to something every night of the week. But you don't take it for granted. You choose the ones that you want to go to. And I always encourage young entrepreneurs, if you're going to go to an event, just don't go and walk in the door. Go in with an intention in mind. Tonight, I would like to meet three people who are going to help me move this X part of my business forward. And then once you have that focus, you go, okay, I need to meet three people. Because many times entrepreneurs are shy, particularly in the arts. They'll walk in and they'll go, they'll see this wall of people and they'll say, oh, this wasn't such a good idea. And they'll just turn around and walk out. It's like, no, make a commitment to yourself. You're going to meet three people who are going to help you move this idea forward. And if you only have to stick around because you're going to need that third person and then follow it up. So it doesn't happen haphazardly. You really make a commitment. Entrepreneurs understand that, that it really is about the people that you know and the way that things happen is through other people. So I think one of the benefits of, of using the music business as a, as a platform is that it's so um, oversaturated so one of the things I'll say to the students is, look, nobody cares more than you do about, about this thing. We had one of our students, uh, so they were, they were challenged to, to, to get some downloads of a track. And the students who went the traditional route were just sadly disappointed. Nobody cared. And one of our students came up to me one day with a tray of her inside-out strawberry cheesecake deep-fried somethings. You know, I'm like, I'm in. And halfway through my first bite, she's like, can I interest you in the download of this music? So, so when we keep them doing real things um, and let, their, their, let them grapple with these problems, the solutions can be beneficial to, to all of us. Yeah. So I wanted to hit two challenge type of questions quickly. Um, so I know we have a small crowd here tonight, 
So I want to like move through some of these answers and then really open it up to Q&A since you guys are, are here and that's awesome. So two challenges that I'm really interested in how students can overcome. The first is just getting started. I think for some students, they might have a great idea in their head. They might have this thing where they think, oh man, I've always wanted to start a blog. I've always wanted to launch this kind of project, but I could never do that. Or I'll do that next year. Like, how do they tackle that first step that can be very challenging sometimes of just getting started doing this? There's one thing I like to do. So I started a label in 1988 called Invisible Records. We put out 350 albums. Some sold 100,000. Some sold 10, which is more than they should have. Um, <laughs> but I, I asked my students, what, what did I start my label with? And they're like, oh, $100,000, $50,000. And I started it with $60 in my pocket. And that, that real-world um, story makes them think that anything's possible. Then I'll show them my report card from, from when I left school at the age of 16, which was just D, F, F, lacks concentration, could, should try harder. You know, it's just appalling, and I think they see themselves uh, as high school failed them in that report and, and see, see possibilities. My short answer is fake it till you make it. And I'll tell you guys a personal story. So before I was working at Northwestern, I, I worked in Silicon Valley for the last 10 years in consumer tech. So I worked at Google and a bunch of startups, and then I started my own company. And I had a thesis going in for my own company. It was basically helping internet influencers, so people had really, really large social media followings monetize their presence. It was really just an idea, though. I didn't know if anyone was willing to pay for it. So I called up a very big company. It was uh, Anthropology. And I gave them kind of three pricing options. I had no business. I had nothing. There was no LLC form. There was literally, I was calling from the last company that I worked at from a conference room. And I called them up. I said, hi, I'm so-and-so. And I said, uh, would you be interested in this for $1,000, $5,000, or $10,000? Kind of trying to figure it out if I would pay for it. And they said, we would like the $10,000 option for six months. Where do we send the check? So quickly, not only do I have my first customer, I have $60,000 in the bank to start bootstrapping my company, but, I, but I've also validated that it's a real business because I know if I can sell it to a real deal company like Anthropology, there's a lot of other companies out there that would buy what I'm selling. So fake it till you make it. Yeah. I think one of the things that's very cool about being an entrepreneur these days is that there's so many tools and resources out there that weren't there earlier when I was starting my first companies. Uh, and two of them in particular, the Business Model Canvas and the Lean Canvas. You can Google any of those online. And for me, the first step often is for young entrepreneurs to get the idea out of their head on paper. And once you get it on paper, you can kind of look at it and say, okay, here's, here's what's there, what's missing, where are the holes, what haven't I thought about? Because when you're just carrying it around in your head and it's this idea, you're, it's not clarified yet. So then once it's out of your head and on paper, then you can show it to people and say, okay, what does this look like? What am I missing? And it's not stuck inside of you. It's actually out there in the world. So often, for me, that's the, the very first step. Because then, a, then a, a student can come to me, and instead of spending 40 minutes telling me about their great idea, I say, OK, bring me a canvas, either a business model canvas or a lean canvas. 
And once that's completed, then I can take 90 seconds to look at it, and then the level of conversation is so much higher. Oh, you really haven't figured out your distribution system here. Oh, you really haven't really expanded your revenue streams. Oh, your cost structure isn't quite set up. And so it just is streamlines the conversation and raises the uh, quality of the advice and the feedback that you can get from people. Um, I think I probably would echo what Terry said. It's just I think too many entrepreneurs have a lot of complexity dancing around in their head. And I think the thing to do is just take the first step. Uh, as she said, get it down on paper. This idea expo we had yesterday was a perfect example of students, first time they ever put anything on paper and then publicly shared it with anybody. And that really started to move the needle for them uh, down the path. The other thing is get help, uh, either whether through the universities that we represent. Uh, somebody told me there's 80 different incubator type of programs going on around the Chicago area. There's all kinds of support. There's a music incubator, 2112, up on the northwest side. Obviously, 1871's the 900-pound gorilla in, in the city, but there's just a lot of places to get uh, support and uh, to kind of publicly share what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, those are all great answers. Uh, the other challenge that I know, I think for students it looms large, they think, well, I don't have any money. How can I do X if I don't have any money? How can I make a drone? How can I launch my blog? How can I, you know, get my band out on the road if we don't have any money in our pocket? And, like, how do you get around that? I would say... More, time, more, than, more so than any other time that I'm aware of, there's more tools and opportunities out there for young entrepreneurs than there ever have been before. I think one great opportunity is crowdfunding. So if you have a consumer product or something that a large number of people can buy into, it's also another great way to validate if you actually have something or not is to try to crowdfund it because you can get the money ahead of time. Um, the other is there are tons of pitch competitions and grants and all kinds of opportunities to try to foster entrepreneurship around the city and around the country. So just tapping into that network, um, even if you get just really good at pitching your idea, even if you don't have anything yet, there's a lot of competitions out there. Um, and we're actually bringing one of them to Northwestern this year, so Cupid's Cup. Um, which is for anyone who's en enrolled in school. Um, it's Kevin Plank, who's the founder of Under Armour. It's a national competition that he does. It's going to start, go it's always been at the University of Maryland, but it's starting to rotate this year between universities. So it'll be hosted at Northwestern this year on March 30th, but it's a $100,000 prize. So I think those applications are open through January 1st. $100,000, no strings attached if you have a great idea. Yeah, I agree with most of the pitch competitions are a great way, A, to get exposure, get honest brutal sometimes feedback on your business and uh, also to have a potential amount of, of money. The concern about the payout on the money, though, is where that money ends up going. So we're starting to look at more of an in-kind donation than handing the student a $10,000 check and they go up the street and hit the bar and that's about the end of the <laughs> cash. So we have to kind of take a look at how that money's being used. And I'll give you the answer I was going to give at the very beginning, and, and a lot of students don't like to hear this, but in my own litmus test of entrepreneurs, unfortunately, uh, the primary source of funding for getting started is friends and family. The, the kids walk in and think they're going to make a VC pitch, and I get just wipe VC out of your vocabulary, because until you get farther down the road, it isn't going to happen. In my own case, I borrowed some money from my dad and just hung in there for a few months till I got proof of concept or got that check. 
by faking it before I made it. And uh, I, I found that that is probably the best source. So um, start looking at getting some good friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing is that you really need to look back. Many times young entrepreneurs think that they need the money, and that becomes a hurdle. And you think you really need the money. I can't move forward until I have $50,000 to do this. And yet if you dig a little deeper, you find out, you know, I could probably bootstrap this with maybe a couple hundred bucks. Getting a couple hundred bucks together is a whole lot easier than $50,000. So really look at your idea and see what do you need to really take it forward and do those first iterations of it. I mean, really quick, not to, to jump in front of Martin here, but Terry, building off what you're talking about, like, I have been doing this podcast for 11 years, and we started doing this out as a live venture five years ago, like early 2012. And at the time, we didn't have mics, we didn't have an interface, we didn't have the things that we have right now, but those were one-time expenses. So I got the money together, we got good mics, Sure mics, uh, shout out Sure who have sponsored us, and um, that's, that's true. Not with these mics in my hand, but with other mics, that's awesome. But back then, they were not sponsoring us, so we bought good mics that would last. We bought an interface, I had a laptop, and I knew that if I bought you know, those like six items or whatever, I could go on, and I'm still using the same items from that purchase five years ago. So for me, when we do spend money on something, because we're still an entrepreneurial outfit with this podcast, I do a lot of research on like, okay, if we need speakers, if we need mics, if we need this, What's the best version of it? What's going to last the longest? Where can I find it at the best price? And I dig for probably three or four weeks before I make that purchase. And then the idea is that I have to buy it once and then we have it. So I think that's important too is like if you're going to purchase something, don't buy the cheap version that's only going to last for a year and a half and you know that you're going to have to replace it. Like buy the version that's going to last for like seven years if it's hardware or software. And then that expense is one time and it's out of the way. So sorry, Martin, go ahead. So the idea of, of bootstrapping, it's really important. I, I was listening to the founder of Brown Paper Tickets uh, and the freedom that they have to do whatever they want because they've created that company uh, is, is huge. And, and, and that crosses over. Not everything crosses over into music, but this does, where you don't want all of those voices involved in the production. You want one vision. One of my favorite stories of bootstrapping is a girl called Kimberly Freeman. She didn't have any money to make 400 t-shirts. She was living in a container. So she bought one shirt at the thrift store for 50 cents, turned it inside out, and painted her logo in bleach with a Q-tip, and then sold that shirt to some of her friends who were also homeless. And now she has, I think, 150,000 followers um, on Twitter, I think. And, uh, and those shirts are collector's items. She didn't have the money to record an album in the way she wanted, so she painted the producer's house. And now producers are lining up to have her come and come and paint my house and we'll do your album. So the, it's, that's the creative problem solving that, that can, be, can be missing um, in, in a more formalized business plan, I think. Well, along those lines, and, and Bruce, you touched on this too, like, you know, engagement and collaboration, like how important is that where if you have a product, you have a service, you have an idea, how important is it to get your network involved with that and how does that benefit you? Well, um, 
my business uh, that I started uh, relied on a, a la uh, actually a labor network from all over the United States to get the work done. So I was going to kind of uh, dovetail off the last question where my answer would be if you can um, don't buy it, rent it, uh, which is really kind of, if you think about it, a business model in a, a lot of ways. And I hate to use this Uber of things because that's getting overrun like crazy. But my business, uh, we got a contract from Walgreens to install um, 1,200 phone systems in all their stores back in the 80s. And uh, I had no employees. It was just me. And I was getting handed a $3.5 million contract. And when they called me up, uh, we were putting basically a Panasonic phone system in all their stores. And they were previously renting from AT&T. And uh, when they called me up, they said, um, the only caveat with this project is you have to be complete with all 1,200 stores in three months. So three months, 1,200 stores, no employees. And uh, I called them back, and I said, no problem. As a typical entrepreneur stupidly would do. And then you think, how the hell am I going to pull this off? So I rented the labor. That's the answer to the question. I called Panasonic and I said, do you have dealers in San Francisco, Houston, Miami, Tampa, Chicago, everywhere Walgreens had a cluster of stores. And uh, could you give me the name of that dealer? So I call a dealer up in Houston and I go, there's 50 Walgreens stores in Houston. If I ship you the control equipment and the phones, can you install that equipment, bill me, and then I'll turn around and bill Walgreens. So basically, I rented 60 dealers around the U.S. They billed me a flat amount, and I turned around and billed Walgreens. So there was really no capital outlay, so to speak, in that model. And a great example of not needing the financing. I didn't have the time, A, to put people on my payroll, and B, it turned out to be that virtual labor model uh, sustained us for the next 20 to 30 years of our business. And today, we have about 600 companies around the U.S. doing the work for us. So long, long answer, but it's looking at the type of business model where you would think you have a heavy capital outlay, and if you can rent it or do it somehow virtually, um, to Terry's earlier point, um, you don't have the capital outlay that you think you need to pull it off. Yeah. We're going to do a couple more questions because, again, I want to make this kind of interactive for everyone here. But we've talked about some of the challenges. What advantages do student entrepreneurs have right now? If you're 18, you're 20, you're 23 years old, you know, what do you have on your side that maybe we didn't have when we got started? One is you guys aren't jaded yet. <laughs> And I think that's a beautiful thing, actually. Um, I think a lot of people, as you get older and as you've tried more things, you get beaten down. You, you hear the, the way things are supposed to be done or you hear, you know, people have tried that already. And I think when you're younger, you still are pretty optimistic and you might see things differently than the rest of the world does see it. And that's where the real value comes in, is having a different point of view and a different perspective and thinking of a new way to do things. Um, you'll have a lot of people tell you, oh, no, it can't be done. You can't do it that way. You know, I tried that, those types of things. And you really have to disregard that and keep following kind of your own vision because that's how new things come into existence in this world. I think, um, I think um, one thing I struggle to get students to realize is 
what a huge advantage it is to be a student. You're not a competitor. So we have all kinds of business owners come in, and I just stand back at the depth of almost the trade secrets that are revealed, emotional insight, how they navigated a marriage, this problem, this, just, I'm sitting back the beneficiary of all of this information and trying to tell the students, look, you can go to anybody and say, look, I'm a student doing this, and people will open up and tell you all kinds of things they won't once you graduate. Yeah. It's like a secret thing. I, I, Martin, I always tell my students when they're like, well, I really want to work with, you know, Live Nation. I really want to get an internship at this company. I say, write an email. Or they say, you know, I'd really love to talk with this person, but they're, not, they're never going to talk to me. And I say, write an email, and your first sentence is, I'm a fashion major at Columbia College. I'm a business major. I'm a film major. And once they see that you're a student, yeah, you're right. Like, that does unlock the vault. So, all right, but, yeah, let's hear from everyone else. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I don't know too many alumni that wouldn't pick the phone up if you said you were calling from Northwestern or DePaul um, or wherever. So first of all, I think there's a lot of networking that you can leverage that maybe you're, you don't want to. Or the second thing would be, um, I, I think, the, the power of the Internet now. Um, it's just, it's fantastic. Those 60 dealers I had to find by almost going through the, I hate to date myself, the yellow pages back in those days to find those companies. And now that information is so readily available and you can move your business model so quickly, you know, with those type of tools that, you know, we didn't have 10 or 20 years ago. I totally agree about the resources. Uh, the resources, not only in terms of what's available on the net, but also in person, the meetups, the organizations, all of that information that's so free. When I first wrote the first in my series of books, you would walk into a Barnes & Noble and literally there were like two shelves of books on entrepreneurship and small business. And now there's a whole corner of the store, not to mention everything that's on Amazon. So just the volume of resources. And then students also have amazing resources if they're currently in school. Our students have access to laser printers, to 3D technology, to plotters, to wood shops, to all of that. And in fact, some of them started uh, Catalyze Chicago as a co-working space with all this equipment in it because they got out of school and they went through withdrawal and said, oh my god, we no longer have this equipment, we have to start this up. So there are now resources either within school or shortly after you graduate where you can pool your efforts and you don't have to go out and buy that expensive piece of equipment. You either have access to it as a student or you can go into a co-working space and find it. So just doing a couple more here, building off that, uh, something else I hear a lot when I'm teaching is that a lot of students think like, well... I'm going to be in school until I graduate, or you know, I'm going to do this for a year or two, and then I'm going to go to New York, or I'm going to go to L.A., or I'm going to go to San Francisco, maybe Austin now. Um, what advantages come with being a young entrepreneur being based in Chicago now? Um, well, the Cubs. <laughs> no, I hate to play off of that. It just seems I haven't gotten through the day without somebody saying that that's the answer to everything. Um, I think Chicago is a phenomenal uh, place. I grew up outside of Michigan and moved down here out of college and never looked back. I think the ecosystem here in Chicago is, is absolutely fantastic. Um, I heard J.B. Pritzker speak a couple months ago where he's starting to invest in only in Midwest Chicago-based companies. No offense to Silicon Valley, but 
there's just a different group of people out there. I think of Chicago culture, our hardworking, uh, relational built, uh, my word is my bond. I think uh, some of the investment money, while it may be a bit more conservatively invested here, is, is more sustainable in the long run with the type of companies that we're developing here. And then just play on the geographics of Chicago. I mean, distribution costs are, are at second or third behind payroll and rent for most companies, and, and that's going to come back to be a real advantage for being in Chicago. We're starting to see industries start to recognize that again. So it's a great city. One good sports team. I have to completely agree. I've, I've I have lived and had businesses in New York and out in Silicon Valley, and Chicago is just such a hotbed of entrepreneurial activity now. And I recently tweeted out there was a top 10 list of the most expensive cities for startups to be in, and I tweeted out and I said, a top 10 list that Chicago is happy not to be on because you can get cheaper space here. You can get great coding talent. You can get all of that here. And the other thing is if you're a student, your network is here because the people that you've had class with, plus there are now cross-city university consortiums that are happening that are bringing together students from University of Chicago and Northwestern and DePaul and School of the Art Institute of Chicago and Columbia that are doing things. So we're bringing students together in all of these different schools and all these different disciplines. And so there's this great mashup of young talent that's happening here. It's very exciting. Um, just one quick answer. I, I don't have the article well, memorized, but Blue Sky uh, edition of the Trib ran an article not too long ago where it ranks Chicago actually number one for return on invested capital um, for um, a number of VC funds. Uh, and so if you want to go and pull that article up, there's some great facts in there about why Chicago's coming on strong. So kind of coming to the end here, you know, we're talking a lot about what students should be doing and a lot of it's, you know, connecting to the college experience as you guys, you know, are from the different schools and universities. but. What kind of work should students be doing outside of school, like internships, mentorships? Like, what should they be learning? What should they be attending? Like, what kind of work is happening outside of the classroom that they should be pursuing? Because, as you guys all know, this doesn't shut off the second the class is over. Um, I'm going to um, give Terry another pat on the back here. She started a program at DePaul called the Startup Internship Program. And the center paid uh, scholarship or internship money for our students to go work for a startup for the summer. I mean, you want to talk about groundbreaking. Uh, we, they saw the founder sweat. And some of them came back and said, man, I don't think I could ever be an entrepreneur. You know, the founder would come back in. I just lost my biggest customer. I may have to shut the whole business down. And our students saw that happening. And so you want to talk about experiential learning outside the classroom. It was a great program that Terry kicked off that we ran again this summer. And then we collected the stories from the students on the back end, and it was life-changing for some of them. So that would be uh, one great example of how to get that into, the, you know, from outside the classroom. So the garage is entirely extracurricular, so we don't teach at the, it's not for credit. So everyone who comes to work at the garage is there purely in their spare time to work on their startups. I would encourage all of you to 
again, find something you're passionate about and try to start it while you're in school, whether it's a company or it's a organization or a movement or an idea or something artistic. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, but that's always a really good, interesting story for you to tell when you are, if you do choose to go a more traditional path and get a job. I did over 200 interviews of college-age students when I worked at Google, and I loved hearing stories about people who created something or did something different. I don't want to hear about your internship at Bank of America or your, you know, your internship at GE for the summer. I've heard that story a million times. I think I was always really inspired by the people who, who did something different in this world. At least at Google, that was something that we really valued and the type of people that we wanted to hire. Um, so pursue that in your spare time. And then if you do want to, you know, being an entrepreneur isn't for everybody. It's, we kind of glamorize it a little bit in the media, but it, it's a hard, lonely, frustrating path and it doesn't always end in riches. Um, I think that you know some of our students learn what you just said, that they don't want to be an entrepreneur. And that's a good thing to learn when you're young, if you maybe don't like being a founder. Um, maybe if you don't like being a founder, try working at a startup. So try being an, an early employee at a startup. So it's not your own idea. You're helping kind of bring somebody else's vision to life. See if you enjoy kind of that energy. The way that I explain it to my students is, when it's your own company, you kind of experience high highs and low lows. and Let's say that you're working a big company. Let's say you're working at Bank of America, big company. Every maybe every six months, you like you know you like your job, and then you kind of like don't like your job. You like your manager. You have a good project. Maybe it's a six month cadence. When you're working at a startup, an early stage startup, it's almost monthly. So it's like we had a really good you know month. We made our sales projection. It's like one of our lead engineers quit. We're having a bad month, etc. When it's your own startup, it's daily. So you're going to be like high highs and low lows, and just pinging back and forth like. We're going to make it. We're going to fail. I'm going to hire someone. I'm going to fire everybody. Um, and you have to decide for yourself, like, which of those do you like? Because they're not all for everybody. Some people really enjoy that up and down and, and kind of the excitement that comes with that. And some people like a more steady kind of wave that just comes with a salary paid job. There are all types of places in this world that you can go be innovative. It doesn't have to be your own startup. But school is a good time to try different types of internships and understand kind of what works for you. I saw a recent study that the research shows that recruiters, 70% of recruiters value internships more than they do GPAs. And that they'll look at a resume and they'll say, okay, so this is a GPA, but, and this is the courses they've taken, but what internship experience have they had? Because it reveals so much about student interest and what skill set they're actually bringing to an opportunity. And last year, we placed 426 students at four credit internships, both within Chicago as well as around the country and around the world. And our students come back, and even though they're art students, they are working across the entire spectrum. And just like you discovered that entrepreneurship may not be for you, some students would come back and go, man, I thought that was exactly what I wanted to do. And I found out that I didn't at all. And that is incredibly valuable because you realize that, okay, so I thought I had this, but I really didn't like 80% of that. But the 20% I did like, let me see how I can tweak that and move that maybe to another industry or maybe another role within that. So internships are becoming more and more valuable, not only for the specific industry information that you can learn, but just the general work experience that it brings you. I have one other just quick tip on internships, which is the best internships, like the best jobs, are usually not listed. They're the ones that you kind of have to go seek out on your own. 
So remember all those entrepreneurial skills you learned because you're trying to start something in your spare time at college we just talked about? You're going to use that same skill set when you go out and try to find an internship. So again, follow your passion, look for interesting people or interesting companies that you've heard of that you want to work for, and use that same tools kit to be kind of scrappy and get in there and see if you can make your own internship. That's, that's the best way. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. That's something I see a lot. I've had teaching at Columbia, I've had students come up to me after class and they go, do you need help with the audio editing? And I go, oh my God, yes, I do. And I have one intern, uh, I, I, you know, she's a producer, uh, Ingrid Legends, who has been working on my podcast for two years. And she was a student of mine and she came up to me after class and said, I do audio work, do you need help? And I said, yes. And she's been an incredible asset. And I'm a big believer in, like you're talking about, Melissa, like, go out and create the internship or the job that you want to get. Like, if you look on that Live Nation website and it doesn't look like they need someone to help backstage with, like, artist management, go tell them why you're the person who should be doing that anyway, even if they're not looking for that. Like, never, yeah, like, look at that job list and be like, well, I guess they don't need me. Go tell someone why they need you and have a portfolio and be like, look, here's my photography work or here's my video, you know, reel on Vimeo or whatever it is, like, go show people why you should be on their team. That'll go so much further than just sending a polite email being like, I would like to intern for live, I don't, I'm just using Live Nation as, but you know what I mean? Like, if they get that email 1,700 times a day, go meet them out at South By or at a Chicago, you know, networking event or wherever it is and be like, hey, guess what? I've done two tours, you know, with my friends' bands or I've done this. This is why I'm your guy or girl. I think um, some of our placements, our best placements, are students who've had five or six internships, which is great. The music business is a difficult place for that. It's a little bit dangerous, uh, exploitive sometimes. But I would add a service learning component to an internship as well. So we've worked with Guitars Over Guns, the Haven Studio down on the south side. And when students get involved with an event, that directly benefits um, a course financially and in terms of visibility and helps the students uh, light up, then it, has, it adds a whole other purpose to, to their growth and also another facet to their resume. Well, I love it. Uh, this has been incredible. We're going to open it up to Q&A in just a moment. But first, I really want to thank everybody on this panel because you guys, this has been like really, really incredibly valuable insight. Um, and so many people are gonna hear this podcast, which I think is great because it's not just the people in this room that we're sharing this information with. Um, Melissa Crowns Kaufman from the Garage at Northwestern, Bruce Leach from the Coleman Entrepreneur Center at DePaul University, Terry Lonier from the Career and Professional Experience uh, Office Department Branch at uh, SAIC, and Martin Adkins from the Music Department at SAE. Thank you guys so much, let's give it up for them. You've been listening to a production of Dynasty Podcasts. Find more Dynasty Podcasts at DynastyPodcast.com. For the dynamic dynasty, Dynasty Descend.